Nachyomi for the Orthodox Union, Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges, Perak Zion, Chapter 7, Rabbi Bini Marilis. Chapter 7 deals with the battle that Gidon fights against the Midianim. In chapter 8, we'll see an entirely different piece of the story. But in chapter 7, we get the story, we get the fight, we get the war itself. But before we actually get to the war and the miraculous nature of it, and the miraculous nature of the way the Jews fight, the strategy involved, the military aspects involved, we're told the story of the establishment of the army of Gidon. And Gidon's army takes on a very, very different character than the army he begins with. Keep in mind that Gidon has just established the notion that he is in fact the person to be the Moshia, although to some degree he has some level of uh, fear and awe and concern about and worry about his own viability and his own worth with respect to the task. Nonetheless, he goes for it, and now he's going to lead. And in assembling an army to fight a group who has been described to the size of a locust, and to the degree by which they couldn't see the end of them, so one would expect that he would need a very large force. But at the same time, one has to understand that there's another goal in these battles. It's not just simply beating back an enemy, but there is a musar, there is a lesson, there is something to be taught a level of rebuke, almost, in the manner in which they have to fight these wars, in the manner in which they have to understand what the wars are being fought for, and what they are to gain from them as a people, the Jewish people. So we see a very fascinating event that's going to play out with respect to God, in a sense, bleeding out the army of Gidon and reducing his forces to an almost unfathomably small number to fight this war. And even with that very small force, Gidon is successful. Vayashkem Yerubal hu Gidon, v'chola amasherito, in verse 1. Gidon, also known as Yerubal, rises early. Vayachanu al Ein Charod, and they encamp at a place called Ein Charod. Ein Charod is essentially at the base of Har HaGilboa, and it's south east of Afula, in the region, of course, as we discussed, in the region of Menasheh. And the camping and the grouping of the Midian is due north. They're rightly north. Be mindful of the fact that he's called both Yerubal and Gidon in the same text. And there's certainly a reasoning for it. It's not simply poetic only. But rather what he says, says, says the, the author, Shmuel Hanavi, and the Dasofim writes as follows. That he should go out to war in the character of the person known as Yerubal. So they should be able to fight with those who worship the Baal. And to prove, 
that, that people, the nation of God, is under the providence of God and not under the providence of the Balim. As the nations of the of the uh, of the land had heard that it spread out into the land of Al Hosif Gam Gidon, but it also says Gidon, Hakodim Batel. But the original name doesn't go away; is not nullified and void. Notice that in verse two, God will speak to him as Gidon, not as Yerubal. The name Yerubal was given to him by the people, not by a Kadosh Baruch Hu. He fights as Gidon. And here we get to the story. Gidon is ready. He's ready to go to war. He's convinced. He's ready to go to battle. God speaks to Gidon. He says, Your army is too large. I can give Midian into their hands. They're too large to give Midian into your hands in this capacity. Lest the Jewish people walk around and say, I did it. It was me. It was the massive amount of soldiers that fought that we were victorious. Remember back in Yehoshua, uh, one of the tricks, quote unquote, that was used, the military strategy near Ai was to overwhelm Ai with a very large force such that the next group of nations would think, oh, well, if we outnumber them, we'll defeat them. It was simply a ruse to get them to battle and then a Kaddish Baruch would rout them no matter what the size. Here... The Jewish people are in a certain matzav. They're in a certain status, in a certain place, spiritually. And they have to be taught what has to be taught. The Dan Sofim writes, Matzav ruach ha'am ba'osah The status of the nation, the, the spirit of the nation was such, that if the war was fought with a large force, they would not have seen the hand of God in the battle. Hilkach, therefore, Nitzdava Gidon Lahavchis Es Tzivao. Therefore, Gidon was commanded to diminish his armed forces Ad until he had a very small number of people. It's because God is with them that they win the wars. So it goes as follows. And now call out into the ears of the people as follows. Anyone who was afraid, who was fearful, should go back. What's the difference between Yarei and Chareid? So Yarei is an inner sense, it's an inner concern. It's a feeling a person may have. Chareid, says the Das Sofrim, Chareid, says the Das Sofrim, is a different level of fear. Chareid is Hargashat Pachad Amuka Yoter It is a deepened sense that a person has a deepened fear, an inner fear, deep in their soul, in the recesses of who they are, they are fearful. And what that means, the Datsofim continues in his explanation, is that what Gidon was trying to remove here was not simply people who were afraid of battle. That's Pashut. That's obvious. But on a deeper level, he's trying to disparage those who are fearful of Avera in their lives, 
who have a spiritual concern here and remove them as well. Because the goal here, again, is not It's not my own strength and my own power that has won this war, but it's a much deeper, much more spiritual sense about who this is. Who are the warriors? The holiest, the greatest, the most spiritual people in the nation? Those with the smallest, if not any Avera at all in their being? So that, that when it comes out that they won the war, they can be mefarsim, they can, they can make public who was the force, and no one would have a question as to why they won. So he says, anyone who would be afraid should go home. Vayashav min ha'am esri mushnaim elef. 22,000 people go. Vaseres alafim nisharu. And 10,000 people remain. There's no harm in going home. There's nothing wrong. It's not an avera to leave. There's no transgression in leaving the, the, the theater of war. But he's left with 10,000. 10,000 is a much smaller force. Again, fighting against a very large enemy. It's not over. Verse 4. Od ha'am rav. Still too much. It's still too much. Because here now, who do we have left? We have 10,000 people who are not afraid of Avera, who are not afraid to go out to battle. So perhaps even 10,000 would be too many for the people to think, this is Yad Hashem. So he has to take them down another notch. Horeid Osam El Now God f- performs another test. Take him down to the waters. And a Kaddish Baruch Hu says, and then we will purify them there. The notion of etzrefenu is from a notion of tziruf. It's a notion. It's a notion in a language of purification process. It's a, a terminology um, when we we try to purify metals, to clean cleanse metals. So it's a notion of that kind of a word. So you want to purify them further. Now you want to remove any element, any shemets, any little bit that connects to idol worship. And he says as follows. And whoever it is that I say to you, he should go with you, he shall go with you. And anyone I say that I tell you that shouldn't go, shall not go. Meaning, even if a person wants to go, if I say to you no, no. And even if a person doesn't want to go, but I say to you, that guy has to go, that guy has to go. There's no choice. Now mind you, keep in mind, it does not seem that anybody else knows what's going on here. None of the other tribes, none of the other people. It simply looks like the actions of a, a wild man. Anyone's going to go to war with this small amount of people? He's going to keep diminishing his force? Doesn't make any sense. So you can understand how there may be frustration, perhaps, in the, in the field of the people, which will explain, perhaps, something that happens at the beginning of the next chapter with the children of Ephraim. But he's diminishing his forces from 32,000 to 10,000, and now even further. So he takes them down to the water. And to this point, Gidon doesn't know what it is that God wants from them. And now God tells him. 
He takes them down to the waters. God says to Gideon as follows. Separate those who drink water like a dog from those who get on their knees to drink. There's a difference. The person who drinks like a dog laps it up with their tongue is not on their knees on the floor in the water. The person who gets on their knees to drink is drinking from the water directly into their mouth. So the person who's drinking like a kelev perhaps is in a crouched position, draws up some of the water and drinks from their hands. And the second one is a person who gets to the edge of the water, gets down on their knees and bends all the way forward, puts their mouth to the water and begins to drink. That second group is the group that's not going to go to war. Because that action of getting down on one's knees is reminiscent and symbolic and connected to idol worship. Are they in fact idol worshippers? So some of the Mepharshim say yes, that removes that concern. But clearly already we've seen that these people are perhaps very righteous. The Dasofrim doesn't think that necessarily they're idol worshippers. But keeping in mind what we're trying to accomplish here, we want to be lifting Meshura Sadin to the maximum. Removing any possibility, any connection, relationship whatsoever to idol worship. So even if their action here was not with intent, with kavana whatsoever, removed. Not part of the battlefield. Not part of the army. In verse 6, we're left with 300 people. And the remainder of the group got down on their knees to drink water. So from 32,000 were whittled down to 300. If you do the math, it's a very small percentage. Starting with 32,000, 10% of the 32,000 would be 3,000, a little over 3,000. So he's left with 1% of his army. 1%. And God says to Gideon, verse 7, With the 300 men who drank the water in a certain manner, I will save the Jewish people. And Midian will be given over into your hands. And everyone else will be sent away. It seems without any reason, without any understanding, no one seems to grasp what it is that he's trying to accomplish. No one seems to get what it is he's trying to do. No one is informed what he's trying to do. He sends them away. Now according to the Malbib, he doesn't send them away to the degree by which they're gone completely, but rather he sends them essentially to the, to the sides. They are laying somewhere in the distance to perhaps be used at part of the battle, and the Malbim thinks that they're the force that he sends to the mountains to be brought down later on to catch the Midianites as they're trying to cross to leave the land. Either way. So now he establishes his army at 300, and now he gets them the armament and the, and the, and, and, and the armor that they need. 
They take the food that the nation had brought, the ice, shofro, sehem, and all of their shofros. And everyone else he sends back. And now he's left with the 300 men. And he strengthens them. Imagine being amongst the 300. And you see everyone else being sent home. Perhaps it's an issue of your confidence. Perhaps you're concerned. How are we going to fight this war with 300 people? So, Gidon is machzik. Gives him chizik. He strengthens them. He tells them we're going to win. The Kaddish Baruch is going to fight for us. The Midianites are now in the valley. So Gidon is somewhere in the mountains. He's above them. He's looking down upon them. And it's time to go to war. And so as he's about to go to war and God says it's time to go to war, we have a very interesting twist. God is sort of lenient with Gidon. He's not forcing Gidon into battle at the moment. He's advising him perhaps to go to battle, but he doesn't exactly go immediately. And we'll see that he delays. He's not punished for delaying, but perhaps it relates to one of the two approaches we dealt with before. Either he's not confident, um, and that we wanted to say perhaps that he's mikatne ha'amuna, but I don't think that's the case. Or perhaps he simply again does not trust in himself that he's worthy of this. And God allows him to be afraid. And it was on that night, the night after the army was established, God says to him, Go down into the camp because I've given them over to you. They're yours. They're yours. Don't worry. No ifs, ands, or buts. You have nothing to fear. The nation of Midian is yours. You and your 300 men, go. Very good. However, in verse 10, we get something else. And if you're afraid to go, then you and this person, Fura, go down into the camp. Sneak your way into the camp of the Midianites. And listen to what it is that they're talking about. Eavesdrop on a conversation. And then you will be strengthened, your hands will be strengthened, you'll feel confident, you'll feel the power, you'll feel like you're ready, and then you can go to war. So, Gidon has a choice. And he takes choice number two. He goes down to the edge of the camp where the armed forces are, and he begins to listen. Verse 12. What he sees initially, in the way it's described, is that he sees the encampment, and they are like a locust. They're in a tremendous amount of people, they are there in very large numbers in Midian and Amalek and Bnei Kedem. And there is no way to count even the number of camels that they have. They're like the sands of the, of the beach. A multitude, an incredible number. 
Vayavogidon, verse 13. Gidon arrives, and he's listening. And a man is telling to his friend a dream that he had. Vayomer, he says. You read this carefully. It's a fascinating dream. It has a fascinating explanation. And some of the details make sense with respect to why it takes this form. I had a dream. And a bread, a bread, a loaf of bread, is rolling through the camp of Midjan. It's a certain type of bread. It's a, a harder bread. But it's a bread that Rashi writes is baked on coal. And it's a bread of Sa'orim. Interestingly enough, Rashi writes, because of the merit of the Korban Omer that's brought on Pesach. So it's Sa'orim. Also, interestingly enough, why is it specifically some sort of a bread? So remember the timing of all this is that the Midianite, the Midianite camp would always come in when the chance of the Jews was to plant and to grow seeds so that they could produce bread and all the things that they would need. So it's sort of something that's on their mind. It's something that they're thinking about. So it makes sense in terms of a dream that he would be dreaming about something that relates to the timing of their event. So he says, oh, so this bread is rolling around in the camp. And it comes to the tent. And it hits the Yoel, and it hits the tent. The tent falls, and then it flips the tent over, and then the tent falls down on the ground. Like a wild vision, it startled just about anybody to see a piece of bread do that to anything, let alone to the to a tent, and a tent in their camp. What does that mean? What does that mean? Vayan Reyehu, the friend says and thinks and says, Vayomer. This has to be a dream about Gidon. It has to be about Gidon, the man of the Israel. That God has given into his hand Midian in the entire camp. This interpretation could, excuse me, the interpretation could have been anything. And this is the interpretation that he takes. Pashut, obvious, this is, ain't in no other way, right? Ain't zos. It can't be anything other than what I'm about to tell you. This is the explanation. Now, it may be the explanation, but if nothing else, it's certainly what's on the mind of the people, and it's their concern. It's their, what's what they're thinking about, it's what they're fearful of. Gidon being victorious. And of course, Gidon is listening. Mind-blowing coincidence and timing. Gidon hears this. He hears the, the language of the dream, the telling of the dream. The shivro, the shivro is the pitaron, it's the explanation of the dream. And he bows to God. 
He goes back to his camp and he says, let's go, time to go. God has given us the camp of Midian. And now watch the military strategy. Brilliant, brilliant strategy by Gidon, the warrior here. Gidon has now changed. He's gone from a fearful individual, someone who is not convinced of his position. And in this moment, with the dream, he changes. His entire, everything about him changes. He grasps and seizes the moment. And he goes for the victory. And he splits up his camp into three. Hundred, a hundred, a hundred. He gives everyone a shofar. And empty vessels, empty jugs in their hands. And torches inside the jugs. Makes sense to hide the torches so they wouldn't see as they're coming down towards the camp. And he splits the camp into three. And he says to them, Do what I do. See what I do and do it. I'm going, we're going to come to the edge of the camp. And just like I'm doing, you should do. I will blow my shofar in verse 18, and everyone with me will as well. And then you will blow your shofars in the places where you will be around the camp. And you should cry out for God and for Gidon. For God and for Gidon. It's a mantra, it's a a, a, a call, a, a cause out, something to call out. It's from God. It's also from Gidon. Gidon and his group come to the edge of the camp. Right at the beginning of the middle watch of the night. The night is split up into three parts. Each section in Ashmores is a watch, is being watched by a group of soldiers. And he arrives as the first group of soldiers who are tired are leaving. And the second group of soldiers who have just been awakened are arriving. Perfect timing, the dead of night. The Shomrim are there, they're established, they're certainly armed. And they blow shofar, and they break the vessels that are in their hands. Imagine the shock. Imagine the the confusion in the camp, the concern in the camp, suddenly being under attack of some variety, not knowing the number of horses, where they're located, what they're doing. The leaders of the groups... The leaders of the group do follow in suit. They blow shofar. They break their kadim. And in their left hands they take the fires. And in their right hands they have their shofaros. And they call out to God and to Gidon. And they're standing around the camp. If you have three groups of a hundred, so you're covering three sides of the camp, the open side is going to be the side towards the river, towards the mountains. 
Vayarats kol and the entire camp is running around, and they're discombobulated, they're confused, they're they're at a loss, they're afraid, they're running around, they're trying to get away. And all the shofaros are now blowing and blaring. Because of the confusion, because it's the middle of the night, and because of the noise and the sound that's going on in the camp itself, suddenly the Midianite people are turning on each other, they're turning on themselves because they don't know who is the enemy and who is theirs. Remember, it's a mixture of Midianite, Amaleki, and and Anshikedem. So you have all these people mixed together. They don't know who is who and who is what and where it's coming from. And it's suddenly out of nowhere in the middle of the night. And they run to a certain location. Tsarasa is on the, is just by the Jordan River. If one looked at the modern map, it would be on the uh, in, in, on the Yardane. It would be south of Beit Shan in that region, off of the Hare Ephraim. They're running in this direction. They're running. They're trying to get out of the country. They're trying to get away. And he calls out to gather to gather people from the other tribes, and they run after Midian. Keep in mind that when Gidon had gathered, an army had gathered people from all kinds of tribes, and the 300-person force that he's left with is not from one tribe specifically. It's from a, a mixture of the tribes. The remaining people that he sent home, it seems that he didn't send them home home, but he sent them away from the region and the initial place of the battle that's to take place. But it seems that he has in mind to use them again, and in fact here, he does use them. And 24, he sends out messengers to all of Harafraim to say as follows, Redu, come down, we cross Midian, cover the water areas, reach out to the border regions, don't let them pass, don't let them out. And come and they surround them and they take the areas. They take control of the regions near the waters so that they're not able to cross. They capture and they rout two of the leaders, the princes of Midian, and they kill both of them in places, it appears, that are called after them. Sur Orev and Biyakiv Zeev. El Midian. And they pursue through until they reach Midian. And the heads of these two men are brought to Gidon on the other side of the river. Gidon is a power. He's a force. He's a leader. He's taken charge. He's taken control. He has fully believed in a Kaddish Baruch Hu and what a Kaddish Baruch Hu has shared with him and has told him was to be the case. And he's now leading the Jewish people in a manner, in a way, different than he believed of himself before. It's the maturation process. It's the 
coming into one's own. It's the belief in what it is a Kaddish Baruch Hu is presenting, what a Kaddish Baruch Hu wants. And in fact, it's the fulfillment and the follow-through. It's a confidence level that Gidon applies to himself. And he rises from the lowest of the low in his own mind, where he's from the lowest family of, the smallest family of Menashe, and he's the youngest of that lowest family of Menashe. Now he's leading the army, and he routes the Midianites with 300 people, and now he's the leader of the Jewish people. As we go into the next chapter, chapter 8, we'll see more of that factor. We'll see more of him as a political figure, as a leader amongst the Jews, going forward into tomorrow's parak.